A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you could join me today. And together, we shall revel in wrong think because there is plenty of it to go around. And, and thankfully, uh, that's, that's really the antidote to all of the, uh, what would you call it, uh, right think <laughs> that's being forced on us at every turn. I had a thought, and as, as I start the show today, look, I got a lot of different topics I want to cover, but um, laying awake at night, which I find myself doing more and more, as my brain just wants to process everything that's going on around us. I know I'm not alone in this. And it occurs to me there's a lot of conflict, right? Nobody would argue that uh, there isn't an immense amount of friction and conflict and contention everywhere around us. Um, There are are battles being fought in the streets. There are strategic battles. I don't know if you're keeping an eye on what's going on between the U.S. and China right now. But, uh, you know, if, if you're not feeling a little bit uneasy about uh, how, how relations between, that, uh, between these two nations are, are cooling, mm, might want to pay a little bit closer attention. That's, uh, that's just another added level of difficulty that we may be facing soon. But it occurred to me as I lay awake last night with my brain trying to make sense of all of this, that of all the different battles that are going on, I think the most intense one that any one of us is likely to find ourselves fighting at the moment is going to be an individual one. And, you know, I, you've heard me say before, and I, I won't belabor the point, but I, I really believe we are to the point right now in, in our situation, a political solution is not going to fix it. Okay, no, I'm not telling you give up and throw your hands in the air. I'm just saying your vote, while important, is not going to correct the course that uh, that our ship of state is currently on. It won't do it. Neither will fighting in the streets. Okay, it's not going to be a matter of, you know, who has the, the most guns and who is able to deal the most damage to their their enemies. I think we are at the point where the the only thing that is really going to make the difference that needs to be made is for us to rediscover what the founders called a firm reliance upon divine providence, meaning a recognition that God is and that God stands ready to help those who would humble themselves to call on him. And I'm saying this in the context of as much as I would love to see all the problems in this nation fixed in one fell swoop. Bam, you know, COVID is cured. Uh, the economy is restored. Uh, our enemies are vanquished and everything is great. That's not going to happen. At least it's it's not going to happen, you know, the, the way that we would like it to happen. So what's more likely is as individuals, this is the time for each of us in whatever battle we're fighting. And, and don't tell me that you're not fighting one. Everybody is. This is the time for you to call on your maker. And work on winning that battle first. And I say this from the standpoint of because I, I believe that winning that battle or at least gaining the uh, high ground in that battle, because I don't think it ever really ends until our lives are over. I think that will do more to set things right, at least within your immediate environment. 
than any, you know, major, you know, the clouds part, the angels come down and, you know, everything is fixed in one fell swoop. We start by winning the greatest battle of all, which is that battle within our own hearts between good and evil or the battle between truth and error. But to do that, I believe we need God's help every bit as much as uh, as we would as a nation, as the founders felt that, that, that their generation needed that, that divine providence to help them prevail. What was the difference between them and us? Probably not as much as you think. But I think one of the biggest differences was they, they weren't ashamed to acknowledge a higher power than government. They weren't ashamed to acknowledge higher moral truth than man-made laws. Maybe that's something we should look into. All right, sermon over. Let me put the pulpit away here and pull the soapbox out. Let's talk about our mental health, because right now I don't know a single person that I've talked to who isn't feeling the effects of the pandemic and all the restrictions and just everything that has changed around us. And it's it's not just the, the physical and financial aspects. You know, wearing a mask is difficult and sucks, and it, it, it represents things that are very alarming to many of us. The financial stress, yeah, that's real too. But the mental stress, that's the one that we really have a hard time talking about because, you know, well, if you, if, you, if you were to so much as suggest, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, mentally I'm struggling to deal with, with what's happening. Nobody wants to say that because there's a stigma. Oh, you're a mental case, huh? Oh, you're not right in the head. Uh, you know, and, and we, we marginalize mental illness to the point that people who actually struggle with it don't want to come forward. They, they don't want to seek help. Why? Because, well, uh, they're going to be marked. They're going to be marked for life as, you know, you know, deficient mentally. That's really sad. But the truth of the matter is, I think most all of us are struggling right now. Mentally, we feel the stress of what we are going through. And I'll make no bones about it. I'm positive. This is one of the reasons I find myself lying awake at night with my mind racing. I know I'm not the only one doing this. Well, there's a marvelous article published on LewRockwell.com today. It's from Daisy Luther, who blogs as the organic prepper. And it's called Mental Health and the Pandemic, What Preppers Need to Know. Now, whether you're a prepper or not, this is still extremely good information. And she starts with a quote from Psychiatric Times which published an article last month about the mental health pandemic that came along with COVID-19. Here's what Daisy says. Actually, this is what the article says first. The article says the health and financial costs of COVID-19 have resulted in widespread feelings of helplessness and overwhelming anxiety and despair in response to circumstances over which we have little or no control. Chronic exposure to severe stress in the absence of control among countless millions, constitutes a perfect storm with severe mental health consequences on a global scale, including increased rates of depressed mood, suicide, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Individuals who were already struggling with mental illness before COVID-19 are now facing even greater challenges. Historically, increases in rates of severe mental illnesses have followed in the aftermath of national crises. For example, during the decade of the Great Depression, 1929 to 1939, the suicide rate rose from 13.9 to 17.4 per 100,000. 
Traumatic memories of surviving years of hardship through the Great Depression resulted in high rates of anxiety and depressed mood for generations. Although economic downturns disproportionately affected the health and well-being of the lower income segment of the population, all socioeconomic groups are negatively impacted. And the article goes on to say a second wave of the pandemic will be driven by intense feelings of anxiety and despair in a world that is no longer predictable and safe due to high rates of unemployment and homelessness, coupled with traumatic memories of surviving one's own brush with COVID-19 or the death of a partner, parent, or loved one. Again, this is from Psychiatric Times. Now, Daisy Luther says mental health issues have not been handled well in the best of times in the United States. By that, she means here's a pill for that. And this certainly isn't the best of times. People have self-reported significant increases in feelings of depression, anxiety, and hopelessness. Certain groups are having a more difficult time than others. Healthcare workers, mothers, college students, pregnant women are struggling to deal with uncertainty, fear, and loss. Alcohol sales have skyrocketed and social isolation has been linked to an increase in suicidal behaviors. She says others who are suffering are people who are at higher risk of a bad outcome if they get COVID. The elderly and those who have chronic health conditions in particular are dealing with stress and isolation. Their loved ones are staying away to keep them safe. But she says perhaps the loneliness is just as dangerous in another way. Daisy Luther says, I've got friends who have relatives in nursing homes who haven't been able to see family members for six months. And those patients are declining fast without the love and presence of their family members. Now, she asks the question, were preppers ready for this? She says, even among those of us who are prepared for interruptions in our day-to-day lives, the effect on mental health is something many didn't expect. She says, I'd written a bit about the emotional aspects of the pandemic. I wrote an article about how, even though I'd planned for it and prepared for it, it still felt somewhat unreal to me. And she says, I also wrote about how the uncertainty of the situation was taking a toll on members of my family and my friends. And the comments on both of these articles told her she was not alone in the way she felt. Mental health, however, was the one aspect many preppers weren't quite ready for. I mean, how do you help someone accept the life that they'd planned is no longer an option, at least not now? How do you help someone accept the fact that the world will never go back to normal? At the same time, there are many people in the preparedness and survival world who are dealing with the pandemic by denouncing it as a fraud or a hoax. And that's a mistake, too. We've got to take a quick break. We'll come back to Daisy Luther's article, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've been sharing with you an article from Daisy Luther, who blogs as the organic prepper. She is uh, really a remarkable resource for information if you are even the slightest bit interested in being prepared. Daisy has years and years worth of archives of fantastic information. She's also got a really good take on most every current event that you can imagine. Right now we're talking about mental health and the pandemic and what you need to know in order to be prepared. She talks about how this was the mental health aspect of this pandemic was one thing that most of us weren't prepared for. And she says what's worse is there are lots of people in the preparedness and survival world 
who are just dealing with the pandemic by saying it's a fraud. It's a hoax. I have friends who are doing this. Well, she says it could be that the government response was inappropriate, but being angry about it doesn't change it. Just because preppers didn't get the apocalypse they planned for doesn't mean that this situation isn't life altering. We still have to cope with a whole new set of rules and norms or risk financial or even criminal repercussions. So you can rage on the Internet all you want, but it doesn't change these facts. And the facts are masks and whether or not you agree to wear them have become a symbol that is almost tribal in nature. There are many businesses and public buildings you can't enter without a mask. Walmart and McDonald's recently jumped on board this uh, this mandate. Workplaces may require masks, gloves, temperature checks, and other measures for employees. Travel outside the United States is greatly restricted. Air travel has changed dramatically. Millions of jobs have been lost and are never coming back. The supply chain is devastated. Schools are reopening in ways that are unrecognizable. We'll actually talk about that a little bit later this hour. And nursing homes and hospitals are not allowing visitors and loved ones are dying alone. Now, Daisy Luther says all of these changes are difficult for just about anyone, and particularly so for those who disbelieve the seriousness of the virus. She says, I recently spoke to a person in her 80s who said it feels like they're taking away my whole life. So now the question is, how can you help those who are struggling with mental health issues? Whether it's you or someone you love, there are things you can do to help those who are currently feeling the effects of fear, depression, anxiety, uncertainty, and isolation. Now she says some of these things she's mentioned in previous articles, but they bear repeating. Number one, she says, make sure the person knows they're not alone. It can help to know that others are feeling the same emotions and stresses. As well, regular phone calls, chats on voice over Internet, platforms like Skype or the socially distanced visits that take place outdoors can be a bright spot for anyone who is feeling isolated. Here's an important one. This is one I'm learning to, to incorporate in my own life. Daisy Luther says, stop focusing on things going back to normal. If you keep wishing for things to get back to how they were before, she says, I'm afraid you're going to be in for a constant disappointment. Many aspects of our lives have changed irrevocably. One of the new things that uh, Selko, who was a survivor of the uh, uh, Balkanization and the breakdown of Yugoslavia and the civil wars there, Selko talks about over and over is the importance of adapting to the new rules when your situation changes. And this one is no different. Next, she says, make plans every day. If you aren't working or if you're working from home, you still need to make plans. Create a schedule for yourself. Don't just lay there on the sofa watching Netflix and Amazon Prime all day. It's not good for you. Get up and get dressed. Not necessarily office dressed, but don't wear the same thing to live in and sleep in for three days in a row. Figure out what nutrient-rich meals you're going to make that day. Think about how you'll exercise. Will it be a walk with the dogs around the neighborhood, or will you go to a nearby hiking trail? What work do you need to get accomplished? What room are you going to deep clean? Write it all down on a whiteboard or on a piece of paper on the fridge so everybody knows what's on the day's agenda. Boy, this next one's a big one. Don't lay around watching television all day. Set yourself a time at which you'll watch a movie or a show online. Now, Daisy says she's worked from home for years. And one rule that she has held for herself throughout is that they don't turn on Netflix until it's getting dark. That means in summer, it's later because we can spend time doing things outdoors during the nice weather. If you start watching while you have lunch, 
It's an easy way to get sucked into a series, and the next thing you know, it's bedtime, and you never accomplished anything. That isn't healthy mentally or physically. So she says, I strongly advise that if you're a television viewer or a person who likes to stream shows, limit it to evenings. Secondly, she says, prepare for what you can. We all know that we need to prep with the basics of food, water, seeds, tools, and the like. And that doesn't really change regardless of what the future holds. So keep doing what you can to build up supplies and skills. A lot of things are out of our hands, but you can control what's within your power. We know that things will most likely continue to deteriorate, and we could be in for a second wave. So continuing to stock up as you can, even a little bit at a time, is just as important as ever. And I really resonate with this next suggestion. Don't consume a constant diet of bad news. Daisy Luther says, I spend time researching the virus, the effects on our economy, how it's decimated other parts of the world, reading the heartbreaking stories of loss. And she says, I've been doing this since January 20th when it first really appeared on my radar. And she says, I do not advise it to anyone. It can be hard to see the light when you spend your time delving into the darkness. Now, Daisy says, I've been doing this for years and can compartmentalize to some degree, but this has been a long haul. Limit the amount of time you spend reading about the outbreak and the difficulties surrounding it. Unless your job depends upon you knowing every detail about COVID-19 and its effect on the world, you can stay informed reading about it for 30 minutes a day instead of six hours a day. She says, trust me when I say this, your outlook will become much brighter when your day is not filled by press conferences, the follies of government officials, incompetent government officials at that, and stories of suffering. In fact, she actually has some great tips on handling a barrage of terrible events. Just as a quick aside, this is something I have to deal with as well, because my job requires me to be somewhat informed and aware of what's going on. And that means I probably spend more time than I would like perusing the bad news as well as looking for the good news. And I've had numerous friends comment to me, I couldn't do what you do, Brian. I couldn't spend that much time thinking about, examining, and then talking about this stuff. Well, I don't want to sound heroic or anything, but uh, I'll agree with him. It's not easy. And I have to unplug from the matrix every so often to, uh, to keep my head straight. Next, Daisy Luther says, enjoy making healthful home-cooked meals. Remember all those times you said you didn't have time to cook? Well, now if you're currently out of work, you finally have time to cook. Don't just heat up frozen pizza after frozen pizza. Get in that kitchen and whip up all those tasty delights you've wanted to make for years. Learn how to bake bread if you don't know how to do so. Cook things that take half a day to prepare. Make every tiny detail from scratch. Set the table with nice china and give your food the showcase it deserves. She also suggests work on some projects you never had time to do before. What projects have you always put off because you didn't have the time? In her case, they're currently converting a storage room in her daughter's small apartment into a second bedroom because it looks like she's going to be there for a while. She also suggests spending time outdoors. If your municipality allows it, she says, get outdoors. You can still be socially distant while getting fresh air. Avoid the clusters of humans and walk the challenging trails at your local hiking place or go early in the day while everybody else is still sleeping in. Getting fresh air, exercise, and sunshine is healthy for both your body and your mind. And if you can't go out for a walk, she says at least, at the very least, sit on your balcony and patio and, and read for a while. She also suggests find something to be thankful for as often as possible. I agree with this, by the way. That attitude of gratitude makes tough times easier to stomach. 
Yeah, sometimes you'll have to think about it. But when you look around and realize life could be much, much worse, take a moment to appreciate what you have right now. She also says, focus on the things you can do something about. We can't change the government's response to the virus, but we can control what we plan in our garden, what books we read, read the skills we learn. Make sure your loved ones know that they are loved. Check up on them, even if you're feeling blue yourself. Don't let too much time go by without a phone call or an email. And last but not least, she suggests get professional help. If you or someone you know is really struggling and is beyond the help of these small steps, don't be afraid to reach out and get professional help. Help, help rather. Depression, anxiety, and PTSD are not things of which you should be ashamed. And most importantly, she reminds us, you don't have to handle it alone. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Just a reminder, I have show notes each and every day. You can find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. And every one of those show notes comes with links to the stories, the various essays that I talk about, including uh, you'll also find essays that I don't have time to share necessarily in my brief on-air time. So uh, take a look. I try to pick stuff that is good, that's uplifting, that that gives you more uh, truth and light than it does anger and fulmination. So I I try to pick stuff that will do more than just make you angry, but actually help you be better informed and and hopefully uh, a little more uh, well-equipped to face whatever the future may hold. Now, what I'm about to share with you is one of those examples of kind of an unexpected essay that just shone a little bit brighter light than I had been expecting. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I miss about, uh, you know, the old normal as opposed to the new normal, I miss being able to just on a lark, get together with friends and go have a sit down meal at a restaurant, basically to have some kind of a dining adventure. I mean, I know the restaurants are opening again and there's social distancing and whatnot, but Remember how hard it was to get used to the fact that, uh, okay, DoorDash or Uber Eats is going to have to deliver whatever it is that I'm going to eat? Well, if there is a bright side to this, it is the rise of coronavirus cuisine. Jacob Greer, writing for Reason.com, says, In the face of the greatest challenge in generations, America's chefs, bartenders, and restaurant owners are reinventing their food, their businesses, and themselves. And I've seen businesses where I live that have done this, and I I just have the greatest admiration for them. Times may be crazy, but they're doing their part to to make sure that uh, even in those crazy times, we can still have some culinary adventures. Jacob Greer says, this was not going to plan. On Monday, March 16th, I was supposed to be in Austin, Texas, wrapping up a week-long event at South by Southwest, where I would have been making Scandinavian craft cocktails alongside some of the top chefs in Denmark. Instead, he says, I was home in Portland, Oregon, essentially unemployed, alone on the patio of a brewery, enjoying one last beer before my entire industry ground to a halt. A few other lasts had occurred at the end of February before I had any inkling of how drastically the novel coronavirus would disrupt the hospitality business. He says, my last flight to New York City, which I happened to share with a friend who, upon landing, discovered his phone blowing up with congratulations for his bar's James Beard Award nomination, 
Our last extravagant celebration that night was champagne and exquisite French French food and giant bottles of rare chartreuse someone had smuggled in suitcase smuggled over in suitcases from Europe. My latest venture into food tourism, taking the Staten Island Ferry out to find lunch in America's largest Sri Lankan neighborhood. So many aspects of this ordinary trip, he said, seem impossible now. Flying on planes, taking public transportation, casually running into friends, and more than anything else, packing into restaurants and sharing dishes and drinks without the specter of a deadly disease hanging over us. By March 16th, he said it was clear those things would be going away for a long time. The executive order shutting down businesses in the state was still a day away, but Oregonians were already staying home. He says, I'd worked a couple of bartending shifts the week before, two of the slowest and lowest paid of my career. Those last nights before the executive order, he says, I hesitantly visited a few of my favorite bars, torn between a desire to honor the virtues of social distancing and a desire to offer a last gesture of support to my friends in the industry. He says, I came up with ways to rationalize the visits. The places were mostly empty. The only people out were other service sector folk. We all knew that our time was up. He says, I imagine it's what being at Lehman Brothers in 2008 must have felt like. If people at Lehman Brothers were covered in tattoos and worked for tips, see you on the other side, we said as we parted ways, tapping elbows instead of hugging and having no idea what that would mean. Well, in this case, uh, Jacob Greer says what it meant was a few months later, in, a few months into life under COVID-19, we're starting to figure it out. The combination of state lockdowns and public fear of the virus has gutted the hospitality industry at all levels, taking down businesses of every size and stature. Serving a quality product and cultivating a loyal following is no longer a guarantee of success in the present crisis. Through no fault of their own, many beloved places will shutter forever. But he says amid the grim news, some of the top bars and restaurants in the country are finding innovative ways to survive. And they provide hopeful glimpses into the possible future of a drastically altered dining culture. Now, first, he starts with the bad news. There is no sugarcoating it. The COVID-19 pandemic. Well, I'm going to add this. The response to the COVID-19 pandemic has devastated bars, restaurants and other hospitality businesses, driving unprecedented levels of unemployment. The economic shock is difficult to fathom. Prior to the current crisis, the highest number of unemployment claims filed in one week in the United States was 695,000. In the last week of March, claims exceeded 6 million. By mid-May, more than 36 million Americans had filed a grim statistic that still undercounts the damage. No industry was hit harder than leisure and hospitality, which shed at least 8 million jobs, nearly half the sector, in just two months. In various states and cities, restaurants were forced by emergency shutdown orders to cease all on-premise service. Many business owners made the decision to shut down independently for the safety of their guests and employees. And politics aside, consumer demand fell drastically as awareness of the pandemic took hold. Predictions for the year ahead in the restaurant business are dismal. A James Beard Foundation poll of 1,400 predominantly small and independent restaurants found that nearly 40% had closed at least temporarily and that only 20% of owners in jurisdictions that had shut down felt confident that they could remain solvent. Industry observers predict that a quarter to one half of bars and restaurants will not survive. Government responses have focused on providing aid to workers. Back in March, the federal government passed a temporary boost to unemployment benefits, and it also implemented the Paycheck Protection Program, 
a federal fund aimed at keeping workers on payroll. But less has been done to ensure the viability of small businesses. Slow response times, inadequate funding excluded many from the initial round of Paycheck Protection Program loans, which favored the larger chains. And the relief that was available wouldn't be enough for the long term. Businesses were going to need to find ways to make it on their own. So now some good news. He talks about Aaron Barnett, who is the chef owner of St. Jack, a French bistro in Portland, which in current conditions means he's also the chief dishwasher and prep cook. Prior to his official statewide shutdown, he made the difficult decision to lay off most of his staff and transition into takeout. Unfortunately, meals that work well in a dining room often don't translate to delivery. Barnett says a lot of French food doesn't travel well. You can't serve an emulsified sauce and expect it to be good after 25 minutes in a car. Instead, more casual menu items such as the hamburger and the frites. uh, Is that right? The frites? Sorry, I'm not a French cuisine expert. Or the fried chicken sandwich are leading sales. He says, I don't know when St. Jack became a burger joint, but we're selling a lot of burgers now. Way to adapt. Barnett also looked into how restaurants serving other cuisines packaged their takeout so he could adapt the practices to his own cooking. Vietnamese pho, often delivered with the broth in a separate container for the customer to reheat at home, inspired Barnett's own takeout pot a feu, a French stew. He says, I make a porcini consomme that you can boil and pour over the top. It's tough coming up with fun dishes like that, but they work out really well. And Barnett isn't the only high-end chef unexpectedly flipping burgers these days. In mid-May, Rene Redzepi of Copenhagen's Noma, the frequently the best-named restaurant in frequently named rather the best restaurant in the world and a path-breaking leader in new Nordic cuisine, announced that Noma would temporarily reopen as an outdoor wine garden and burger bar. And he says you see it too at Portland's Gado Gado, a beard-nominated Indonesian-Chinese restaurant that's won national acclaim for its Ridge Staffel, an elaborate family-style feast of curries and sambals. Gado Gado has morphed into Oma's Takeaway, where diners pick up bags of Asian stoner food, such as the Amazing Burger, a burger accented with Asian touches like coconut herb butter and a side salad of pickled papaya. Now, some of these changes simply reflect the need to serve food that travels well for takeout or delivery. But even as restaurants gradually reopen to diners, they'll face pressures to limit the potential that limit the potential rather for high cuisine. By the way, he says top tier restaurant food isn't just about tasting good. It also has to look good, both in person and on social media. But no matter how good they taste, meals into go boxes and plastic deli containers will never be as Instagrammable as the dishes at contemporary restaurants. Nevertheless, social media is providing is proving essential to making takeout a viable option for restaurants that would have barely considered that market before. And he gives some great examples of this. He also talks about how this is rolling back prohibition. For some bars and restaurants, the lockdowns mean adopting an entirely new playbook. And that's especially true for drinking establishments, many of which are operating in a legal environment that would have been unimaginable as recently as the beginning of this year. Bottom line is, if you can change your business model and adapt, reinvent your identity, restaurants can survive and some of them can even thrive in the time of coronavirus. I'll have a link to the article. If you're a foodie, it will tickle your heart. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I am so glad that you could join us. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, can I just suggest trip on over to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find the subscribe button right there. You'll find show notes. You'll find original essays as well as other resources that I regularly use in the course of doing my show prep. And, you know, I look. As much as I want you to listen to me every day, I would love to think you're hanging on every word that I'm saying. But I understand life is busy. You don't always have the time. And that's why I'm going to suggest as much as possible. Look to the resources that I look to. I'm more than happy to share them. If if you're another host and you uh, feel lazy and don't want to do your own show prep. Hey, have at it. You know, (laughs) happy to help you there. But uh, bottom line is you need to become. That uh, that person who knows how to cultivate and and how to source your own information to better get an understanding of the world around you, how it works, and more importantly, what you can do. I'm happy to help, and this is why I'm suggesting subscribe to the podcast, because if you're pressed for time, and I know most of us are in some way, shape, or form, that's a great way to listen to the program on your own terms. We've got great guests. Gary Welch will be joining me in the second hour of the show. Again, we're going to talk about uh, the the damage being done to the free market, being done to individual liberties. But more importantly, we're going to talk about what we can do about it. And we're going to discuss an ebook which we are about to release, that describes how coronavirus has peeled back the curtain and revealed decisively just how socialist our government has become at every level. Oh, I know it's going to make some people happy and other people furious, but it's, it's a, it's a wonderful ebook. And Gary and I have, have worked hard along with, uh, with, uh, with our friend Byrne to, to make this a reality. And uh, I, I think it's going to be something very worth your while. So stick around details on that are coming up. So here's my question for you. What's the difference between a rant and a heartfelt Passionate defense of the truth. Yeah, I think we all know the answer. It's really going to be in the eye of the beholder. But I want you to take two minutes and listen to a journalist making a very principled defense of the truth. It's going to sound a little bit like a rant, but holy cow, does this guy drop some truth bombs on California bureaucrats for the way that they have responded to the coronavirus. This is one of the best takes against COVID tyranny that I have ever heard in my life. Check it out. Thank you. Uh, Next up is John Ziegler and then Deborah Baber will be in after. After waiting for two hours and now getting two minutes, I'll get right to the point. Uh, This board is pretending that for the last three months, your emperor, Dr. Levin, has not been against a mask declaration. Now, all of a sudden, we're pretending that masks are everything, even forcing speakers to use masks. I would like the board to take a position. Was Dr. Levin wrong for those three months? And if he was this wrong, why has he not been removed? Why has he not been fired for being so catastrophically wrong? Or do you not really believe he was wrong you're just wearing these masks because it is a signal of your great virtue. Damn! Damn. Because for the last three months, we have not worn them. And Ventura County has done outstandingly well and continues to do outstandingly well because we are not Los Angeles. We are not New York City. We never were going to be any of those things. Ironically, this is one of the few things Dr. Levin was actually right about. 
He has been wrong about everything. He is the one who told us we would have four to 600 hospitalizations a day. He, he revised that to two to 400 a day. We still haven't reached that in one day. We're barely over 200 for the entire ordeal that you guys have put us through. We now have panicked over 51 total hospitalizations in a county with eight hospitals. Can you people do math? Can you please do basic math and understand where we are on this? This is not a crisis. You, however, have created one. You, in an effort to try to prevent all death, when we've had 43 deaths, have now ended all relevant life. And you should all be ashamed of yourselves. And this will never be forgotten, ever be forgotten. You will all be held accountable eventually, in this life or the next. You all better hope there is no hell, because when you die, that's where you're going. And guess what? You're not going to be dying of COVID either. Thank you. Wow. Holy cow. <laughs> okay, so now you understand why I'm saying, what's the difference between a rant and uh, and maybe just a good old passionate defense of truth? I know. It, I probably lean towards, okay, that was probably closer to a rant, but pff, tell me tell me where this guy was wrong. I mean, he could have delivered it in a softer tone, but that that line about how in the interest of, of, uh, of preventing death... You have taken away life. Powerful, powerful stuff. So I'll have a link to this if you want to share it. it uh, it's been making the rounds on Facebook. That's where I first saw it and just went, wow, that's, that's some pretty bold stuff. I can imagine that the bureaucrats were a little bit uncomfortable in hearing that. And yet they should be. Not because they're bureaucrats and we should make their lives miserable, but because they need to understand that the decisions that they make or that the, that they purport to have authority to make go far beyond just the, the appearance of, well, we're doing something, aren't we? Why can't you be more grateful? They can cause a great deal of harm, and they do cause a great deal of harm. And then somehow when the time for accountability comes, they just sit there and pass the buck back and forth. Oh, it wasn't us. It was them. Why we had no choice. You saw no choice. You had a choice, but you saw nothing other than using compulsion to get your way. All right. Sorry, I'm a little fired up myself after hearing that. I hope you're not driving as you're listening because that could uh, that could get you kind of wound up. Another article that I will be sharing with you, and you'll find this in the show notes as well. Don't close the schools, but protect teachers and staff. I know the question on a lot of minds of parents and students and teachers is to school or not back to school or should we just uh, close them? And Ethan Yang, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, says, don't close those schools. He says, with the school you're inching closer and closer, concerns about how the education system should react to COVID-19 are at an all-time high. On the question of whether children should return to schools, the questions of a blanket cancellation of in-person classes will bring a series of negative consequences that will likely outweigh the benefits. Now, we shared his article with you last week about uh, where he explained the trade-offs to some degree. And to summarize those points briefly, school closures will result in a series of negative trade-offs that will likely render the policy counterproductive. And these are some of the points he made. School closures are not a tool to prevent infections, only to delay outbreaks to save hospital capacity. COVID-19, unlike influenza, affects children less than adults. So there's no evidence to suggest children are important in transmitting the disease. Teachers are not prepared to provide an adequate remote educational experience. Children will likely be safer in school than out of school, especially in communities where they might be exposed to substance abuse, domestic violence, gang activity, etc., 
School closures will exacerbate the existing economic downturn. And finally, school closures will impose childcare burdens on health care workers, leading to an increase in mortality rates. I was talking with one of my daughter's friends who is a nurse uh, the other day, and she said that was one of the things that really surprised her was the depth to which the COVID virus, or I'm sorry, the coronavirus affected people's uh, child care options. You know, especially those nurses have to be at work. They're, they're considered essential personnel. But when school isn't in, you know, suddenly they are tasked with, okay, so who's going to watch your kids while you're working? So there are concerns about opening the schools up, concerns for protecting students, protecting teachers, protecting staff. The solution, according to Ethan Yang, is to uh, basically do what you can to protect them, but give agency to communities and to individual schools to decide what's best for the unique needs of their staff. In other words, dispense with the one-size-fits-all approach. The best policy, he says, would be to keep schools open while taking the necessary precautions to protect the most vulnerable. But he says a top-down mandate, whether it's a complete school closure or an attempt at less restrictive universal policies, is never going to be as comprehensive as a decision made by individual schools, which can tailor solutions to their own unique circumstances. Man, I wish more people would adopt this. I wish more bureaucrats could think this way. And there's some great information in Ethan Yang's article. I'll post it so you can check it out for yourself. And uh, again, this will be at the com. Look under the show notes for July 27th, first hour of the program. Coming up in the next hour, again, Gary Welch will be joining me. We are going to talk about the damage being done to the small business owner, to the economy, to your individual liberty. And we've got a wonderful ebook coming out soon, which which demonstrates this and documents it as clearly as can be. But it also talks about solutions. And you know what? The solution isn't necessarily reinventing the wheel so much as it is learning what you stand for and, and the fact that you can stand. And hopefully we'll give you some of the intellectual ammunition to make that uh, a reality. Thanks again for joining us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Subscribe to my podcast at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.